Welcome to this edition of Rick and Bubba University. And yes, uh, the studio is still empty. Uh, I am the the loner here. Uh, Bubba is uh, in his one of his home studio, uh, and of course, we'll join our guests here momentarily as well. Uh, but uh, Bubba, first of all, uh, welcome back to Rick and Bubba University. How about you? You know, Rick, what a pleasure and honor it is to be back here again and getting to do this uh, this new. Uh, longer format uh, thing that we're doing that we've enjoyed. And we've had some great guests on, and I know everybody's really going to enjoy today. Yeah, you know, Easter, uh, a lot of you are hearing this and watching this uh, the day before Easter or maybe even on on Easter uh, morning uh, or that afternoon. Uh, this is uh, the biggest uh, weekend uh, for those of us in the Christian faith. And, of course, during the week and uh, with Passover, uh, those of the Jewish faith, and, and here we are in this pandemic. Now, we, we also want to talk about the, the concept of this book. It's, there's, you know, there's so many books that are out there, and, and we, we were sent a lot of books. And we had in the Golden Ticket Seats uh, members of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And it was a husband and a wife. And the wife kind of pulled me over in, in one of the breaks, and we were saying hello, and handed me the book, The Unsaved Christian. Now, that title, immediately I started looking at it, Reaching Cultural Christianity, with the Gospel by Pastor Dean and Sarah of City Church there in Tallahassee. He's a graduate of Liberty University, got a master's in theological studies from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, he authored the book. He pastors the church. So uh, I said, we got to have this guy on, and it worked out that he could be on the week of Easter. So welcome to Rick and Bubba University, Pastor Dean and Sarah. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. So let's jump uh, to the pandemic first. Um here we are. Uh, we didn't realize how much of our economy was tied to people gathering. That's been a, uh, a rude awakening for us. But we all were pretty accustomed uh, to gathering to worship uh, on the Lord's Day and, and throughout the week. That has been taken away, and here is Easter. Tell me what it's been like uh, for you as a pastor, uh, you know, getting ready for, for Easter weekend but not being able to gather. Hey, I, I'm a regular guy who calls balls and strikes like I see them. Man, it's been terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's, just been, I mean it's, it's, it's been really difficult. You know, I mean, it, our, we've kind of had to let our church really kind of grieve over it for a little while because it's a big deal for us. Like it is every Christian church across the world. We meet at Florida State's basketball arena for our Easter service and gather thousands of people. It's a great opportunity. But at the same time, the scriptures tell us we don't grieve as people without hope. Easter still happened and it's still a truth and still a reality whether we celebrate it as a big church or in living rooms or not. So that's what we're doing. We're going from, yes, we're upset about this for real life people who are allowed to use real life emotion. But at the same time, we still have every reason uh, to worship on Sunday, even though we can't be together as a church. Well, maybe we're a lot like Bubba, like the early disciples. Maybe we'll treat it like the actual crucifixion and resurrection. And we all hide in our homes and afraid they're going to kill us. That's right. Until we get the good news and, and the Holy spirit hits us and then you can't stop us. <laughs> So, so let's talk about going forward. And you don't know. I'm not asking you to, you know, make policy for the country. But a lot of people, uh, you know, that that are members of the church, and I talk about the Church of Jesus, and um, and they they are struggling with: Are we caving in? Now, I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I know how you feel about that, and you're going to hear an amen for both of us on that. Okay, I'm not talking about that at all. That we should somehow test God, or we tell God what to do, and then He does it. I don't. That's a false theology, and I think it does horrible damage to people. But that's another day. I'm, but, I'm with you. Yeah, and, and I know. I read you. You mentioned that even in the book. But I want to talk about though. There are some people saying, you know, we certainly want to be good citizens. Romans 13, 
okay? And people aren't are, aren't saying we can't have church because you are you just did your Easter, you know, sermon and it's going to be virtually available for your church body. My church is doing that, Bubba's church is doing that. You know, we're even doing our small groups on Zoom and, and things yeah. like that. So church and Easter were not canceled. But but is there a point where the, the, the church would say, okay, we've got to go back to gathering. Do we wait for the government to say that? Uh, because right now, Bubba mentioned this on the show today, and Bubba, you're right, we're really being asked to do these things, and we're being obedient in doing them. We're not in a police state, and I hope we never get to one. Yeah. But yeah. But, yeah, but where, where do you think the church needs to land? Or maybe you should just reassure people that what we're doing isn't the wrong thing to do. Yeah, well, one, I'm thankful that, that there's believers that are angst, have a lot of angst about not getting to meet together and who are upset about it. I want to know when can we? That's a great thing. I, I'm glad people long to be with their churches. I hope that's a result, one of the results of all of this. Uh, but I, I think there's a bigger picture that all believers have to remember, and that is our public witness. Uh, so I think one of the worst things that we can do right now is to kind of thumb our nose at the government and say, we're going to meet anyways. Because an outside world is watching and they're going, wait a second, I thought you cared about your neighbor. I thought you're supposed to love people. Like, like I thought you're pro-life. I'm like, what, what's happening here? And again, that's not to say that the government might not be overreaching. Perhaps they are. Uh, but at the same time, there's a bigger fight that we're in right now. And it's not to be able to meet together. Even though I'm a pastor, I can't wait to meet together. <laughs> but we want to make sure that the world sees us not as people that are arrogant or thumbing our noses or defiant uh, when we don't need to be. Now, again, if we were asked to compromise our faith or to refute what we believe, that's a different kind of story. You know, yeah. then we tell them, you know, where to stick it. Right. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, we, we want to be I think we need to be faithful witnesses and to show that, hey, we're even going to put the most special thing aside to the church, gathering together, because we believe there's a bigger picture out there, and that's to care for the most vulnerable and, and to really be in step. So that's where I'm at with this. Yeah, yeah Dean, we, we agree with you 100%. I, I compare it to a tornado warning. We would leave the sanctuary. If the sanctuary was on fire, we would leave the sanctuary. Look, we're just out of the sanctuary. The church is still there. The, the tomb is empty. Jesus is on the throne. And this, this is something we've never, look, it's our first pandemic. We've never, we've never lived through this. So, you know, we're working with the government and I think you agree with us. We're good till April the 30th. And even if we had to go maybe a small time after that, but you know, if you start getting into late summer in September, I think you're going to see a lot of pushback and we would, you know, we will cover that then. But I think right now, like you said, we're, sh we're sacrificing so we can love other people and hopefully not spread this and do more damage to people that, that would not be hurt if we had stayed in place. Yeah, and, and I just can't stand what's happening right now with a lot of the mainstream media is that the high, high, high majority of churches are not meeting right now. Right, right. But you get a couple of crazy uncles, you know, who are trying to do whatever they want to do, and that becomes the main story rather than the churches that are sacrificing. It's all about, you know, the, the less than 10% of churches that are gathering so we're not going to win regardless, but we, at the same time, I think we just have to make sure we're striving to be as good a neighbors as possible. I think the scriptures say that. So when they do say something bad about you, they're basically refuted by your actions. And exactly. that, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And you look in Acts when it says, as far as we're concerned, be at peace with everybody, as, as far as we can control it. And so, yep. and when, so we're controlling, it doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes society won't let you be at peace with them, but as, <laughs> as, far, as far as we are, are in control. And I think also, and I, I, this will be the last thing we'll say to this and we'll get into the book. But I want you to address it as a pastor because uh, you're, you're on the front lines with this. 
This also, in my opinion, and Bubba, you touched on it, because the technology is available, I don't believe that we're being disobedient to scriptures that says, well, I hear some of you are not gathering anymore. You're not coming together. You're not doing corporate worship. Well, we really are because technology is still allowing us to do that. I say, you know what we're doing? The best we can. You know, we're doing the best we can with the situation we've been given, and the church is still meeting and still alive. It just looks different. It's not ideal. It's not what we even want for the future. But in the meantime, based on the hand we've been dealt, we're doing the best we can. So I think people need to give each other grace right now. Yeah. Like Bubba said, it's our first pandemic. And, and, and so, and there's not a class in seminary called how to navigate through a pandemic. Right? I, I can't look back to the last one to see what I did. You know? I know. And then, yeah. you know what, what I compare it to? And this, I know some people go say, wow, what a stretch. And But a lot of people don't know the history of this. The Berlin airlift, when the, the Soviet Union tried to cut off our access to Berlin after World War II, tried to push our hand on it. And we said, look, we're not going to start a shooting war with you. We're going to fly planes in and feed these people. And we did an unbelievable job. If you look at the number uh, of food of food that was dropped and planes that flew around the clock for months, it, it was an incredible deal. So to me, we're, like you're saying, we're adapting. We're not changing. We're not sacrificing the cause. And we're, we're just going to get this done without going to war with anybody when we don't have to. Amen. Yeah, yeah I'm with you on that. And, and it's, it's not crazy to ask questions. Mm-hmm. I, I can't stand the climate right now for going, wait, do we really, is it really necessary to shut down society till July? If you just ask honest, good questions like that, you get labeled as this sort of non-caring, crazy person. It's <laughs> yeah. like, come on, yeah, like this, this, we have to be able to have these conversations. All right, so let's jump into the book. I, I was I was completely rocked to the core by the book because this is a topic that uh, we have been talking about uh, either on the show. We've talked about it quite a bit in the four years that we've been doing a, a Wednesday Bible study here. And the reason why this is so dear to my personal story is because I was a cultural Christian. Okay, I, I the, your book could have biography of Rick Burgess before 1996. And, and cultural Christianity, why, why I think it, it, sometimes we think, well, we got a lot of problems out there, Rick. I don't know that cultural Christianity is that big a deal. And let me tell you why it is a big deal. Because there's people that may have a false sense of their eternity. And notice I use the word false. So that is a big deal. And you go as far as to say in your book, as far as the Western church is concerned, uh, the American church, that the cultural Christian and certainly in the part of the country that all of us are from, because you're from Tallahassee, we're from Alabama, this may be the biggest unreached people group because we don't think they need to be reached. Oh, absolutely. I'm convinced. It's the largest mission field in America. And, and Rick, I have the same a similar story to you in terms of being moved from cultural Christianity to actual Christianity. I want to get the disclaimer. I don't think I'm the judge of who's a Christian and who's not, That's or do right. I want to be. That's but right. the scriptures are. The scriptures are plain on it. And if we define our faith, over other things than Jesus and his work on our behalf, you might be a cultural Christian. And where we've been mistaken for a long time is people have seen cultural Christianity as a discipleship issue. Just thinking folks need to get more into their faith, get more serious about it, those type of things. Where I'm arguing in the book, no, this is not a discipleship issue. This is an evangelism issue. There's people who aren't Christians, but, but think they are because they have a generic belief in a deity and they're good people. And because of that, I think they're Christians, and we have to speak to this. It's the largest mission field in America. Yeah, you, you talk about it a lot, and the reason why I was so glad we were able to have you on uh, uh, for Easter, because there's going to be people, and, and for some it may be we've already got our game plan, and by the time I heard this podcast, we're already into our services coming up. But I know I went and talked to my pastor about it, 
and he was thankful to hear this because you said yourself as a pastor, the one thing that we miss is we think that Christmas and Easter is when all the lost people, now when I say lost, I mean somebody who never claims to be a Christian, okay? Uh, I'm not talking about cultural Christians because you're going to correct that as you did in the book, that it's all these seekers that show up on, on Christmas and Easter, and here's our chance to reach those that are lost, and they're just trying to figure out whether they need Jesus or not, and that's where all these extra people and extra services come from, but you learn that's not the case. Oh, definitely not. In the same way, I'm, I'm not going to show up at a synagogue or a temple on, on a significant Jewish holiday because I'm not Jewish. Right? So, right. These, so very rarely does somebody who's an atheist or an agnostic show up to an Easter service. But what you need to realize is that every church in America, I guarantee you, they're, they're every Bible-believing church in America is praying that God brings guests to their church services on Easter Sunday. Right now, everyone's praying that people will tune in you know, to our videos and to our services on Easter Sunday. And what we forget is that God actually is reaching, is hearing our prayers and answering our prayers. It's just not the atheist and the agnostic. It's a person who comes to church simply because that's what you do on Easter and has no religious significance whatsoever. I like to compare it to maybe wearing green on St. Patrick's Day, going to a fireworks show on the 4th of July, having turkey at Thanksgiving, that's just kind of what you do to observe that day and really has nothing in any way, shape or form to have to do with Jesus. It's just, this is Easter Sunday and on Easter Sunday in the South, especially we go to this place called church with our family for an hour on Sunday morning, which I even argue this sounds extreme, but cultural Christianity and Easter, the resurrection could have not even taken place and they would still celebrate the holiday. Yep. Because it's just so it's basically a celebration of spring. And part of the routine, just like going to a fireworks show on the 4th of July, part of the routine is you go to church. So that's actually good news for us because God's answering our prayer and actually bringing people to our services to get a chance to hear the good news, get a chance to hear the gospel. So I encourage churches, the person that's coming is not the lost person you think, the person who's an atheist or agnostic. Why would they come to church? Very rare occasion. Maybe do a favor to their grandmother at best, maybe. Uh, it's actually people who think they're Christians and they're not. But what an opportunity to share with them the good news. But but why that's important is pastors, and you said it, and you can tell because uh, you know I, I, you you had an example of it when you went to Tallahassee. First of all, you thought, well, here I go where all the Christians are. I'm not I'm not really like the other students coming out of seminary. And and, and you can tell the story about the guy who was going to California versus you going to Tallahassee uh, early in the book. But you were all fired up because you had these big numbers on Easter. And you assume that y'all should now get more chairs and maybe have to get to a new building. And the very next Sunday, you went right back to the people you had before, minus two. Oh, oh exactly. <laughs> it was incredible. We were at Florida State's basketball arena, thousands of people. We're like, wow, this is it. God's answered our prayer. Here we go. The next week, put on extra rows of chairs. It's going to be overflow. It was almost, I think we had two more people <laughs> or less than two people than we had the week before, uh, before Easter. Why? Because again, it's, it has nothing to do with Jesus for cultural Christians. It has everything to do with just kind of a traditional cultural observation of a holiday. And I make the argument that that person is just as in need of believing the good news of the gospel as the atheist. They just aren't as hostile towards it because it's part of their traditional cultural makeup. You know, we're from the South and we drive trucks and wear Columbia shirts and croquis and back our trucks into parking spaces and we go to college football games and we go to church every now and then. Yes, Wait a minute, Dean, have you been up watching me? What are you telling me? You, <laughs> you ran down all my stuff, man. Well, hey, go Dean, ahead. Let, let, me, let me ask you this for people who are listening to this and they have gone to church maybe their whole life and they have gone up front and they have, you know, asked Jesus to come into their heart. 
but from a, and I don't want to say checklist standpoint, but I think you know what I'm talking about from the biblical side of it. What is a true Christian? How should that look on the outside versus what the cultural Christian is living out now? I really appreciate that question. I think it's two two main words. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of define. The first one is belief, and then it's response. It's those two things. So for the cultural Christian, the first thing I want to see if they're going to become believers, what do you actually truly believe about God? Again, is he the big guy upstairs, kind of a distant force, imaginary friend, or is he actually the God of the Bible? And you might say, well, who are you to say who the God, who believes in the right God or not in terms of it's the God of the Bible or a different God? Well, the issue is I don't have that power, but God does, and he's not vague. He's not generic. He has spoken. He's defined himself, and he wants people to know who he is through the scriptures. So I want to first know what they believe. And then second, or part of that belief is, do you believe that God is a holy God and that he actually deals with sin, that he doesn't let sin go unpunished? Because by American standards, I'm a good guy, you know, and so are you. You know, by the standards of Birmingham or Tallahassee, Florida, I think probably everybody listening to this podcast is probably a pretty good person. But God doesn't judge by the standards of Birmingham or Tallahassee. He judges by the standards of himself. And as a holy God, he can't let sin go unpunished. So cultural Christians believe they're really good people. And what they miss is, yes, they're right by cultural standards, not by God's standards. So the only time they think they need Jesus is if they got to, you know, join Carrie Underwood and ask him to take the wheel. You know, something really bad happens, you know, not actually need him for your salvation. Because why would I need to be saved from sins I don't really commit? That's usually the response would be. They don't think they sin. They just think they make mistakes sometimes. And then I want to know, how do you respond to that? Like following Jesus interferes with your life. So if you claim to believe in Christ and claim that you need him for salvation, to forgive your sins, that you believe that he really is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, you don't think he was exaggerating when he said those things, it should cause then a response in us, not not to win God's love because we already have God's love. We respond to the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So I want to know what do you believe and what do you do about what you believe? And if those things, again, none of us are perfect. I don't live out what I, my theology every single day. I wish I did. I don't even live out every hour sometimes. But my definition of for what makes me a Christian has nothing to do with me and everything to do with what Christ has done on my behalf. And once that clicks, then we go through a lifetime journey of trying to follow Jesus more. Dean, let, let me ask you this. What um, in America 2020, uh, a true Christian, what is he going to look like uh, that that's not a pastor that works, uh, you know, in the, the the radio business or works in, you know, at the tire store or whatever? I know when I was young and you would have missionaries come in and they would talk about, you know, their life in Africa or something. And there's been a lot of comedy bits about this, but you think, oh, Lord, I want to follow you, but please don't send me to Africa. I don't think I can live there, you know. So what, uh, how, uh, I guess, again, for a true Christian, um, we're all not going to be great singers. Uh, we're all not going to be great preachers. But how does that, how does that look in, in America right now? You know, I think the key to the mission of the church is exactly what you asked it's people who aren't preachers and aren't singers living distinct lives where God has placed them that point people to a distinct God. 
Uh, so my hope is that people notice something different in us. Like if you claim to be a Christian, there's something different about that person. I don't mean in a holier than thou kind of way. I mean, in a joy they have, in a love they have, uh, in a way that the things that matter to them seem different than the things that matter to other people. Uh, they have an internal perspective. Uh, I think they're, they're active members of their local church, uh, not because it's a rite of passage or ritual, because they believe that's God's design. And, and I think they're living a, a really, I would call it a grace-fueled life. They're responding regularly to the grace of God in their life. They're responding regularly to how much love God has shown them in Christ. And then that line, distinct lives point to distinct God, is in my head all the time. So we tell our folks here, we say, look, we believe the biggest missionaries in our church. Yes, those who are overseas right now, we have some of those, but also those that get in their car every Monday morning and drive to work. Uh, because God wants to use you in those normal rhythms of life uh, to point people to him. And also we have to open our mouths sometimes too. You know, the scriptures tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We got to make sure that we're willing to tell people the hope that we have. I don't mean get on the table in your workroom and stand on top of it and preach through Romans. I don't mean that. <laughs> uh, but having conversations to answer people's questions, to ask people how you can pray for them. I, I just think the, the idea of who Jesus is and what he's done is on their mind regularly. And that's what fuels them to want to be a good husband, a good parent, a good boss, a good you know, a, a good mom, a good, just on and on. It's all driven, not by cultural expectations or trying to win anyone else's approval. It's based on the fact that you already have God's approval and now you want to live your life to glorify him. Talking to Pastor Dean and Sarah here on Rick and Bubba University, the book is The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. And, and I believe this book is so important. Number one, read it and see how you do. I mean, the first thing I thought of when, when, I, when I put it in my hand was was Second Corinthians thirteen five, really Paul is telling this church at Corinth who believes they're fine, and he's pointing. But we're, I'm looking in the congregation and I'm looking at the lives and the standard that the Bible calls for a follower of Jesus. You got too many things that are in conflict with that, and he and he says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is supposed to be in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So here's Paul telling this church that he had all kinds of problems with in a congregation. If you really want to know whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, just test the way your life looks and the way you live versus how it should look if you're truly been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not, that's not perfection. Uh, that, that's not, hey, I do everything right all the time. But I think and, and you, you cover this in the book, I think we're so afraid, and we've talked about this on the show, to be called self-righteous, to be called holier than thou, to, to be called a, a holy roller, uh, to, to, to be considered judgmental, to be legalistic. We've been so terrified of those things, we've become more terrified of that than how we are in relation to a holy God. And obedience and holiness are called for throughout the Bible and are said to be the evidence, not that you did it, not your great code of conduct or your great self-control, but that the power of the Holy Spirit really is as powerful as Jesus said it would be, and now there's fruit that's produced out of your life, like the things you just mentioned, that come because the presence of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit are so evident. And 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 and, I, and, I, and that's what happened in my life is is when I had a pastor look at me and say, "So you say that you're a Christian? Absolutely. Based on what?" And mm-hmm. then then he we begin to look at my life and go, "Well, there's no obedience here. There's perpetual intentional sin here. 
Uh, there is no desire to be in the Word of God whatsoever, very little desire to even be in worship and attend a church, like you said, except on Easter and Christmas when my mom makes me go. But yet this whole time I've declared that I was a Christian, and you talk about these things in the book, and and one of the things that you mentioned, which I know has probably got you uh, in, in a little bit of heat, you don't seem like the guy that's overly concerned about that, so we credit you <laughs> with that, but you take on this false a feeling that some of us have in our theology, once saved, always saved. Now, look, you're not saying that's not true, but what you're saying is you have to not be – the standard of what it looks like to be saved, maybe we've lowered it so much that we've missed the mark completely. Well, I think it's a sad place when we're more concerned about convincing someone they are a Christian than making sure they actually are. Yeah. And that's what happens a lot, especially in the South, as we're more, and I believe in the doctrine of assurance that we you know our salvation is secure in Christ yep. with all my heart. I believe in once saved, always saved. I also believe in let's make sure you're actually saved. Right. And, and, and if you think that coming to faith is more of a rite of passage than it is an actual conviction of believing the gospel and turning to Christ, then, then you might not be a Christian. You know, something that, and the way I think we avoid the fear of being self righteous is we don't make it about us. And we right. make it about Jesus uh, because the cultural Christian, they, they, again, they think they're Christians. So the only thing that they see as a difference between themselves and an actual Christian is that person is just really into it. You know, they would just say, oh, they're just really, I mean, I'm a Christian too, but they're just, you know, he's just really into his religion. It's kind of like you're the person who gets asked to pray at Thanksgiving because right? you say nice prayers. <laughs> like that's, that's the only disconnect that they see. And, and so why many people believe they're Christians in the South, especially is more based on what they're not than what they are. And what I mean by that is, let's say we all had to fill out a survey right now where they asked us just general basic information, like an application or something along those lines where it said your name, birthday, social, height, weight, gender, things like that. Then there'd be a line that said religion. And it would, the first thing that my box might say no religion. You're going to, well, not no religion. I don't want to say that. So you don't check that box. And then you know you're not Jewish. You know you're not Buddhist. You know you're not Muslim. You know you're not Hindu. There's not a box that says, thinks he's a Christian, but he's not. Right. <laughs> I wish there was. Right. Instead, it says Christian. So you check that because you're not an atheist, you're not an agnostic, you're not Muslim. So we have all these people who have this assurance that they're Christians, and they only believe that by basically generic belief, morals, and heritage, more than actual conviction about who Jesus is and what he's come to do for sinners. And I just, just make a plea to everybody listening right now. If your faith is defined as a, if you claim to be a Christian, your faith is defined by something other than the work of Jesus on your behalf that then leads you to surrender your life to him. Examine yourselves to see if you're really in the faith as Rick read, like, like, please, I'm more convinced of making sure you are a Christian than convincing you, you are. Yeah. In 1995, I examined myself and the decision I came to was either Jesus doesn't have any power or I'm lost. And, and and I came to the conclusion it was the latter, and I did something about it. And I didn't know that much on that day, but I understood that I needed to repent, something that everybody seems to be terrified of now, repent, and I need to deal with the sin in my life, turn from my sin, submit to the authority of Christ, and say, I can't change myself, but I understand enough about you to know that you can. And did I know the Scripture and stuff on that day automatically? It was all just put in me? No. Then a process started, but there was a fire, Dean, that was lit that day that wasn't lit when I went forward as a child and then as a teenager kept trying to get baptized saying, why am I not being changed? I was trying to live a moral life that wasn't as bad as the partiers at my school, but eventually that got away from me and I became one of them later in life because I never really had it to begin with. 
And, and so when that process of sanctification started and is continuing through the day, I started now getting into the Word of God, not because I felt mandated, I wanted to look good, I guess it's Christmas, I better read the Christmas story, I guess it's Easter, I better figure out what, which one of the Gospels has the best uh, you know, historical documentation of the crucifixion and the resurrection. I actually have a desire that wasn't there before to get in the Word of God, and as, I, as that desire and the Holy Spirit opens it up to me, you know, when you start doing that, you'll realize how far off of being a Christian you really were. You may have to be like me and just kind of understand it to begin with, but when you get in the Word and see what it says a transformed person looks like, and how, and then you realize, I realize how far off the mark that I really was. And, and, and that, that was the, it continues to be a wake-up call for me. Uh, you know, I think Dallas Willard said, I think we take in the gospel and, and the standard of the gospel and we're selling it way too low. Like it really doesn't change you that much at all. That's great. I'm convinced the way we reach cultural Christianity is you have to get them lost before they can actually be saved. And what I mean by that is that came from a conversation I had with my neighbor. I was leaving to uh, move back to Tallahassee, Florida from seminary. My house is 10 miles from the Georgia line where I grew up. And he was moving to Northern California to be part of a church planting team. And I'm like, man, he's going to Northern California and I'm going to, you know, to place their sweet tea at every restaurant. You know, I felt like I was kind of taking the easy way out. There's so many churches in Tallahassee. I mean, it goes on forever and ever and ever. Uh, there's probably 200 churches in our town. I might be undershooting that actually. And so I felt a little insecure at the moment. I call it missional insecurity. Missional insecurity is like when you're in college and all your Christian friends are going to work in an orphanage in Haiti for spring break and you're going to Panama City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like, I'll pray for you maybe if I remember, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. So I just kind of, you know, just kind of said some spiritual words, make myself feel better, I think. And I told him I was going to pray for him and all this kind of stuff. Man, you're such a hero to me going out there to Northern California where there's such a need. He goes, oh, stop it. I think where I'm going is uh, easier than where you're going. I said, what in the heck are you talking about? He goes, where I'm going in California, there's no confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. Either you follow Jesus or you don't. Where you're going, everybody thinks they're fine. It's almost like you have to get them lost in order to get them saved. That quick parking lot conversation has now driven my entire ministry here in Tallahassee and led me to write that book. Well, let me ask you about this because one of the things you talk about, and we won't go through the whole book because people need to read it and we don't have time, but I think it's important you hit on it and it, that when you were doing your membership deal on, on you know, somebody wants to join the church and the guy said something to you about Sunday versus Monday that changed the way you looked at church membership. Yeah, we had a, we started a church and uh, from scratch, and I just kind of thought what you do when you start a new church is you start membership, because church membership's a thing. I didn't really have much behind it outside of that, so we had a membership meeting. I thought it's just kind of what you do, and at the membership meeting, we just said, hey, here's what we're about. We'd love for you to join our church. Thank you, you know, kind of thing, almost like a sales pitch, and somebody raised their hand and said, if I join the church today, what changes tomorrow? And I just froze. I had no answer. You know? and, and, and that was a really good question because I realized in my mind, church membership was just a formality. It asked nothing, meant nothing, expected nothing. And so I kind of mumbled and gave some like, just cop out, get out of here as quick as I can, bail out answer. But I didn't stop thinking about it again. And I thought about it the whole way home, thought about it at night. And then we said, okay, to be a part of our church, you're actually going to commit to something. You're going to commit to our belief statements. We, we people join in churches that we don't even know what they believe across right. America right now. Right. You're, you're, we're gonna, you're gonna pledge to live your life for Christ in the community, to be a part of this church, to support this church. And here's the church is gonna commit to you. We're gonna commit that we're gonna be orthodox in our faith. We're gonna stick to this, that we're gonna have you know the right biblical government that oversees this church. So we're above reproach, that it's done responsibly. So like a two-way thing happening here. Uh, we have to rediscover a meaningful church membership 
because church membership is a formality uh, that's no different than joining a country club or, or gym where you just sign up. That fuels cultural Christianity. You can identify with the church without identifying with Christ. What in the world's going on with that? It's terrible. Yeah, and you said the reason why I use that example of gym memberships and and country clubs is those things are focused once you sign up on making sure that we're ha- that you're happy so you'll stay signed up and keep sending your dues in. That's it. And churches don't have customers. They have members, right? Gyms do have customers. They, gyms should be that way. Country clubs should be that way. The church say, no, we're about Jesus. And there's certain things that are going to happen. Do I think it's going to be better for your life if you're part of a church? Yeah, I do. I hope your marriage is better and your decisions are better. I hope all those things are happening. This is about Christ, and this is what our church is about, not about you. Um, let's talk about the South, where Bub and I grew up, and we, you know, we we are. You couldn't get any more Southern uh, than than the two of us, and it sounds like really you may be in that group, except for that interesting story about you being a Notre Dame fan, and and your family would drive you to watch Notre Dame play when you're a little kid, which is a hilarious story. Uh, but, but that was about, my Catholic grandpa. <laughs> that was your Catholic grandpa. But but that's a great story. But we don't have time for that today. But I do want to mention this. You said cultural Christianity can exist anywhere, but the South is haunted by Jesus. And I, I mean, I'm telling you, my wife would, would, would back, we're laying in the bed reading, and I said, you got to hear this. I said, all of this, I kind of was like, yeah, this is a guy, hey, man, he, he's saying, yeah, yeah, this needs to be said, yeah, yeah. And then when you hit that, and, and I thought, wait a minute, I, I got to lean in here. The South is a different kind of cultural Christianity. It's almost like we've been exposed to it so much that Jesus kind of haunts the culture. Take on that and then take that into the, the great example you showed, and that was the example of country music lyrics. Oh, yeah. Well, so the haunting, the Christ-haunted South, I, that, that is, it's like almost like the presence of Jesus. And, and it kind of lingers over where we live. We drive by churches. We drive by billboards. We drive by crosses on the side of the road. We listen to music where they mention church and God and faith in the lyrics you know, and then two seconds later, they're passed out somewhere. They're, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, but the, but what I, where I see it really carry out is in the guilt and the shame. You know, people in the South really often, we really, really sweat what others think of us. We want to present ourselves as having it together, as being a certain way. Uh, just that appearance just matters so much to our people down here. It just really does. It's, it's tragic, uh, but it kind of goes unchecked and because everybody else is just kind of doing it. Uh, and if I think a lot of that is that we know deep down inside that something's wrong, that something's broken, that things aren't how they're supposed to be. Uh, there's there's a lot there's a lot of sin in, in, in the past in the South that, that people that still kind of lingers, doesn't get talked about. It's like that presence of the truth of Jesus just sort of lingers over us where we have enough of him to want to be associated with, but not where we want to be personally inconvenienced. Yeah, so, to suggest, so to suggest to someone that they might not be a Christian in the South is so offensive. I mean, like, if you walk into a restaurant, once we're allowed to again, uh, in the South, and ask every person at every table, are you a Christian? They probably would all say yes. Maybe the only difference would be some of our college campuses. Besides that, they would all say yes. But by that, they don't mean anything that has to do with actually following Jesus. It's more just sort of a, an, a, a cultural association. I, I think they're... So I think the people here are just as lost and in need of Christ as they are maybe in the Northeast or out West. They're just not hostile towards it. And that's what makes it really different. Uh, so where country music plays in, I mean, just listen to some popular country songs and you're going to hear songs about heaven and hear songs about church and growing up and about faith. Like you're going to hear these things over and over again, but they're really sad songs. because They never actually resolve themselves in Christ. It just, there's no real hope in those songs. Jesus is sort of an accessory 
And faith is no different than going to a high school football game on Friday night or going to lunch at Nana's or whatever it might be, but it still lingers there. And, and, and it's really fascinating to do a study of country music. So in the book, I actually go through some lyrics of several country songs. I love country music. I'm not picking on it. I'm just saying, I love it. I'm just saying this is a snapshot for us yeah. of what cultural Christianity looks like in America. Well, yeah, Hank Williams Jr. may have said it as clear as these other examples you gave. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. And and you see that in their their songs, they acknowledge Jesus. They acknowledge something to do with the culture of church. And you said this, but they also, back to the haunting, seem very aware they're not right with Jesus, but they hope it's going to work out that he'll just like them because they were a good old boy or they were they were a good old Southern girl. You know, you, you use that that example that you know. I th- I think Jesus would hang out with me, and he wouldn't mind my my over drinking and me being a little yeah. a little uh, chasing after women or chasing after guys and partying a little bit. And you know, I like Jesus, and he's a good old guy, and 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 I know I need to do some things different, but Jesus still okay with me. And he'd understand my heart. Yeah, he he would. You know, he, I, I I know Jesus. He drank wine, and I know we'd get along just fine, right? And I know he'd understand <laughs> a heart like mine. Yeah. And people sing along to the top of their lungs with that, and and that really is what they think. And these exact same people, they're going to post on Easter Sunday, even though they're not going to church because they can't. They're still going to post a picture in their front yard with their kids, all wearing lily poles or dresses, and people wearing pastels. And they're going to put "He is risen" as their post on their social media. He is risen. Family picture. And then on Monday, it's as if it never happened. Why? Because it's not about conviction. It's about culture. And culture doesn't demand anything of us. Culture we associate with. Conviction calls for our lives. Dean, you have just ruined my Easter post. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you do. I got to go back and do something different now. No, look, look, we've all been there. And I, and you know, I look, I'm talking to me first because I, the reason why this book means so much to me is it's addressing exactly what happened in my life. And I openly admit that. And I don't, the hardest part was to actually get to the point to admit it. Look, it's okay to admit it. Then you can actually be redeemed and be transformed and, and actually access that life that, that the Bible talks about. The biggest problem is I think some of us are just afraid to say we're wrong. We're just afraid to say we're not where we should be. Maybe we're embarrassed by it. We don't want anyone to know that we we certainly – the, 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 the guy, and I told you this when you and I got to talk briefly, You know, a dear friend of mine, Brian Gunn, the first time I heard him take on – this in a different way is he did a, a message I've never forgotten and I've used uh, talking to other people because it seems to click with them when I talk about my testimony. He says, I think cultural Christianity is certainly one thing to call it, but another thing to call it that's a little more harsh is a demonic faith. Really, you say you believe the thing, same things about Jesus and about God that the demons got right even when the disciples didn't. I mean, they always correctly identified everything about God and everything about Jesus. And, you know, James takes this on. You know, James was used the book to radically change my life. I didn't understand all anything much about James, but I understood the word submit, uh, you know, come near, resist. You know, men understand action. Okay, so I need to submit, resist, come near. Action, action, action. And I realized that my life had never, there never been a moment I took that action. And, uh, and so, and then he goes on in chapter two to say, well, you believe in the Trinity and all the things about the Trinity Well, great. So do the demons and they shudder, uh, at the sound of it. So, you know, you, you really, it's kind of like Kyle Eidelman said, and you touched, use the word admire. I admire Jesus. Kyle Eidelman wrote the book fan of Jesus, not a fan there in the South in the, and in cultural Christianity, you find people who admire Jesus, who are fans of Jesus and believe the same things about him that the demons did. The only difference between 
me and a demon was they don't really speak of Christ, you know, in, in ways of admiration or fans. They rebel against him. So what I did is pretended to be a fan of Jesus, then rebelled against him. Yeah, well, they know the right Sunday school answers. They don't worship Christ, right? But but the good news for the person you're talking about who maybe knows that they're, they know they need Christ, they're just afraid to admit it, or they just are afraid they're wrong, Jesus came for that person, right? That the Son of Man came not right. to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. You know, like this is why Jesus came. But here's the people love that verse, John 3 17, that the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. People forget what, the, what it says after that. It's, it's easy to go, oh, wow, Jesus doesn't condemn us. What great news. The reason he said that was the next verse is say, guess what? They're already condemned. Right. So why should I condemn people who already are? I'm come. They're, they're condemned, not because they're these horrible, awful, whatever. They're condemned because they've sinned against God. So I haven't come to condemn them, but to redeem them, but to rescue these people. And we're not going to be able to acknowledge that until we realize that we're lost and need Christ. Uh, so, so that definitely is the key. So yeah, the, the demons, you're, I, I believe the devil is a real being because Jesus believed that and because the Bible says so. And, and if anyone knows that Jesus died on the cross, it's the devil. If anybody knows about Easter Sunday, it's the devil. So James says, okay, great. Basically, he says, all right, so you believe in God? Great. Want a cookie? Congratulations. You know, that, that's, that's what James says. Mm-hmm. He is, so our belief must lead to a convictional response of who God is. And until then, we're missing the whole boat. I know we're getting toward the end, but Bubba, you asked this question, and again, not going to give away the whole book, but I know some people right now, honestly, Dean, they don't have time to get the book yet, but they're thinking, please, you do have a conclusion in this book that kind of gives us a checklist. And Bubba, you were talking about this. And how do I know I'm not a cultural Christian? And I'm just going to give you the headlines. You need to go to the book to to read the details. If you want to comment on some of you can, Dean, we got about four minutes left. Number one, a life of repentance. I just talked about this. Has there ever been a time in your life that you repented of sin and, and, and turned from sin? So there, it, do you have a life of repentance? Are you eternally minded? Do you have a heaven-focused life? Are you clinging to the present and you think you're trying to create heaven on earth? Do you have sound doctrine? Do you even know sound doctrine from the Bible? Are you somebody that, that if somebody even asked you what is the doctrine you believe in, do you even know? Back to what Dallas Willard said. The next one you said, do you have spiritual disciplines? Let us strive to know the Lord. Uh, I mean, do you see in your life that your life does reflect a holiness? I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about perfection. But do you have spiritual disciplines? Do you fast? Do you pray? Uh, Do you make disciples? Do you uh, advance the kingdom of the God, which leads to the next one? Generosity. Are, Are you a person who's generous? Uh, do you give sacrificially? Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you care that anybody's going to hell? And I mean, is that a concern to you? Does it, does it, does it weigh on you? Do, do you have the same concern about that, that Jesus said we should have? And then the, the, the last one you, you mentioned is, do you have love for God and his church? So, 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 you know, that'd be a good one to talk about since we're going this weekend. Do you care about God as he's the center of your life? Is that the foundation? Is that the thing that, that, that seems to be what, what gets your most attention and your most love? And do you love the church that he said you're supposed to love? You know, I was thinking about this as we were talking, that how tragic some of our most wonderful, precious things we hold to in the South, like our, our heritage. People are very proud of their families, about our values and our morals and our hospitality and, and, our, and our basic beliefs, that those very wonderful things can actually be barriers to us actually following Jesus. So let's take these good things and not let them be things that get in the way of God things. 
mm. right? And, and, and that, that this world is not our home. Our loyalty is not here. That God's not going to judge us by our heritage or by, you know, the fact that we think we're great people. He's going to judge us by, by the standard of perfection that none of us could keep. Thankfully, Jesus did keep that standard. He, he didn't just die for us. He also lived for us. Life we couldn't live. So our trust must be fully in Christ that leads us to repent of our sins by faith. And, and it's evidenced by being eternally minded, being people who lo- are trying to love God, love his word, praying people, uh, life repentance, all those things. And I, I just want everyone to ask, to answer the question, like my heart is here on this. I care about it deeply. It's my answer to why I'm a Christian. It's something other than the work of Jesus on my behalf and how I've responded to that. And if it's not, examine yourselves, please, to see if you're in the faith. We, as, a, as Second Corinthians says, we plea on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And that happens through the exact thing we're celebrating Easter weekend. Uh, that, the resurrection. That, amen. Dean and Sarah, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thanking time, thank you for not just thinking you need to write this book, because I know it was a hassle, but you did it. Uh, I, I cannot stress enough from someone who was redeemed from cultural Christianity Man, this is important, and and you may read this and go, man, this just reassured that I, that I am where I'm supposed to be, or maybe it may bring you under conviction, or it may help you to go out and and reach cultural Christians, or maybe get a different strategy concerning some of the big weekends like the one that we're celebrating this weekend. So uh, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, absolutely. Happy Easter, guys. Yeah, Thank happy you. Easter to you. And uh, and you can get the book wherever books are sold. Or you can, uh, you can go right to Amazon and look for it. It's there as well. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Rick and Bubba University. Rick and Bubba.